Let's pray together. Father God, we want to still our hearts before you right now. Lord, we come before you as people who, without you, have nothing to offer. People who have been recipients of just great mercy. Lord, we know the waywardness of our hearts. And God, we thank you, Lord, for a text like we're going to look at today. Because it is a window into our soul. Father, I pray that we would look intently through that window. And God, that you would do your work. That your Holy Spirit would move in our hearts. So Father, it's our prayer that you would just reveal yourself mightily among us today. God, I ask that you would use me as your messenger to communicate your message, God, with clarity and precision. And Lord, would the results be a people today, all of us, be a people who submit to you, God, that you might be glorified and praised. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, that song that Danielle danced to is a telling song. Danielle gave the idea several months ago when we were at the, the beginning of this series. Actually, I don't even know if we had started the series yet. She said, I have a, a song I want to do a dance to. And at the time, uh, I was trying to see, okay, when would this line up best? And looking ahead, I saw Ezra 9. And as I read the lyrics to that song, I thought... That's a perfect place for it. And even as preparing this week's message, I see God's goodness because it indeed is a perfect place. The song talks about the common grace of breath and air going through our lungs, letting us sing. It's a wind to sails. But that writer, who is a believer, uses imagery there and whether or not intentionally does convey this reality. Who put that breath? in our lungs who put the air where it's at and that last statement after all of this all these graces all these blessings after all of this I am amazed that I am cursed far more than I am praised our lives we may not with our lips curse God. We may not with our mouths say something against God. But it's so easy for our lives to curse God rather than to praise Him. When we live a life of compromise, our lives don't praise. So God is amazed at our cursing of Him. This passage today brings that about to us. It shows us the trickiness when we try to walk that fine line between living for God 
and living for the world. When we bargain with our flesh, with the world and with Satan, trying to find a happy medium, asking questions like, how far can I go before this is sin, rather than, how can I walk in holiness? As has already been stated, this passage today is a rough one. Because there's a dramatic shift that takes place in this story that we've been looking at for several weeks. My, my desire is that we would all feel the heartache of this passage. That we would really emotionally connect with the heartache of it. And that we would respond as Ezra responds. The dramatic shift is one that in the beginning of the story we have this, this escalating excitement and then it drops off and it continues and drops off. And here it tanks. You know, at Harvest of the First Fruits uh, a couple of weeks ago, my son got a balloon. He was so excited with his balloon. He walked around with it. We went outside to go to the car, and he did the inevitable. He let go. And just seeing his poor little face watch that balloon go to the sky, that exuberance changed in an instant. And he just cried all the way to, to the restaurant when we went after that. Because he was so excited, but his mood changed. You might have experienced that with your favorite sports team. Your team's losing by a lot. They're staging this awesome comeback. You see them, the points coming on the board. They're, they're making progress. And at the very end, the other team scores and wins. And you're just kind of left, oh, dejected. That's what happens in the book of Ezra. We've got two chapters, 9 and 10 left. And it doesn't end with a thrilling story. Now, just go back with me to chapter 1 in your minds. If you recall, it starts out with the people of Israel in the land of Babylon. They were there because of their disobedience. God had sent them there as a punishment to make them right with Him again. It was a loving thing God did, but it was a painful thing because their disobedience was that severe. And God stirred the heart of King Cyrus, the king of Persia, out of the blue to say, let the people of Israel go back to their homeland. And not only go back, but to go back to build a temple so they can worship their God. It was out of the blue. People who felt forsaken by God all of a sudden felt a revival, if you will. And God stirred the hearts of people to say, we're going to leave this land that we've been in for nearly 70 years. We got comfortable, but we're going to leave it to go back to the homeland and start a new chapter of this story and build God's temple and worship Him right where we want to. And God raised up those people in chapters 2 and 3. And when they got there, they faced some opposition, but they, they went right through it. They continued out and they laid a foundation. And true, some people wept because the foundation was small compared to the prior temple that was destroyed. But others wept for joy because, hey, we've got a temple again. We get to worship our God in Jerusalem, where we're from. There was a thrill. <clears throat> Excuse me. <coughs> there was a thrill about them. And even in chapter 4, they faced some opposition, adversity. And they did respond wrong. They stopped building the temple. But God in His faithfulness in chapters 5 and 6 raised up Haggai and Zechariah, preachers, prophets, to come alongside of God's people and say, come on, wake up. Quit being so comfortable. God sent you here for a task and it's to build His temple to worship Him. And God again re reignited their hearts. They were reminded God was in control and they had that thrill again. 
And they pressed on, and in a matter of four years, they built that temple. And their example was such that even the people of the land, some of them chose to forsake the idolatry and join the people of Israel, the worshippers of Yahweh, the true God of the Bible. And their faithfulness was contagious. And then we have a, a gap of time, which isn't really clear in the book, but if we look at the different months that are mentioned, there's about 57 years that pass between the time the temple is built and the time that Ezra shows up in chapter 7. Ezra shows up because God raised him up to teach his people. Ezra's task was to teach people the law of God, to establish leadership. And things were just going up. You know, there was a small digression in chapter 4, but at the end of the day, this story was progressing beautifully. The temple was built. They were worshiping Yahweh in that temple. Ezra came to teach them the law of God, the scriptures. They established leaders. It was a great, great story. They had the balloon in their hand. But in chapter 9, verse 1, that balloon gets released. The other team scores. Exuberance turns to dejection. If you look at me in chapter 9, verse 1, says, after these things, this is after about a four-month period that Ezra was in Israel. After these things had been done, the officials approached me, this is Ezra writing, and said, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands with their abominations. Here the people have a message for Ezra. They tell him, the people of Israel are living in sin. Now something that's really special here is Ezra taught for four months the law of God. And it appears that because he was faithfully teaching the scriptures, God was beginning to faithfully reveal sin in the land. And as a side note, Good News Bible Church has always been committed to the scriptures and by the grace of God always will be. Because the scriptures are the way that God uses, are things, the thing God uses to speak to us, to show us about himself, to reveal the sin in our lives. And as Ezra was faithful, the sin came to the surface, and the officials said, hey, this is what we see happening. The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations. And look in the middle of verse 1. He, he lists a group of people. The, Canaanite, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. Verse 2. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and the chief men have been foremost. The issue at hand was the people did not separate themselves. But if you notice in the beginning of verse 1, he kind of has a progression of who these people were. He starts out saying it is the people of Israel. This is really broad. These are kind of just the common folk. But then he narrows it. It says also the priests and even the Levites. These are the spiritual leaders of the people. So this was not an issue that was just on the fringe. But this is an issue that has entered the very fabric of the community. And Ezra is struck with this news. That people have not separated themselves. 
from the people and their abominations. Now this list of individuals, these Canaanites, Hittites, and so forth, there's eight of them mentioned. And lists like this show up often in the Bible. And I think what Ezra is doing by having this here is to draw our attention to the previous places it shows up. Because, for instance, Exodus 34, it says this, in verses 11 through 16. God says, Observe what I command you this day. Behold, I will drive out before you the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, Jebusites. So a list like this. Take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go, lest it become a snare in your midst. You shall tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their ashram. And then this, For you shall worship no other god for the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God, lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land. And when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods and you are invited, you eat of his sacrifice and you take of their daughters for your sons and their daughters whore after their gods and make your sons whore after their gods. What strong language. He uses the language of whoredom when the people of Israel are warned not to fellowship with the people of the land. See, what we're going to see here, this is not an issue of trying to separate from people because they were a different ethnicity or because they didn't want to hang out with them. But if they interacted with them and became part of that community, they would compromise the worship of God. And, they, and Moses uses the language of whoredom in Exodus 34. Because the relationship Israel had with God was like a marriage relationship. God had called them apart, said, be mine, enter into a covenant with me. And when God's people would go off to idols, it was like committing adultery. And by joining with the people of the land, it could be expressed as whoredom. Deuteronomy 7, this is probably something Ezra taught them, says, you shall not intermarry with them, giving your daughters to their sons or taking their daughters for your sons. For they will turn away your sons from you. And, he, and, and the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you. Again, the issue is them turning people away from God. And in Psalm 106, it's kind of a sorrowful statement when it says that the people of Israel did not destroy the peoples of the land as the Lord commanded them but they mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed, get this, they sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. They poured out innocent blood, the blood of their sons and daughters whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan. And the land was polluted with blood. Thus they became unclean by their acts and played the whore in their deeds. These are the texts that are running through Ezra's mind as he's hearing that the people of Israel are intermarrying with the pagans in the land. The psalmist likens it to the worship of demons. Now, this, these abominations that is mentioned in verse 1 can be as extreme as child sacrifice. That's what the Canaanites did. But it could be as mild and as subtle as offering incense to a foreign god. And there's a spectrum of idol worship. But at the end of the day, by marrying with the people of the land, the people of Israel compromised their worship of the Lord God. The very God they went back to Israel to build a temple for. 
Now think about Satan's tactics here. Do you recall earlier in the book, he used opposition from the outside, didn't he? Adversity. He used people trying to press down on God's people. And it worked, didn't it, in chapter 4? But when God raised up prophets to reignite those hearts, they went through the adversity and built the temple. And I get a sense that the enemy changes his tactics. And instead of trying to work from the outside, he tries to work them from within. And there's nothing more intimate than a marriage relationship. And when the people of God, the worshippers of the true God, intermarried with the people of the land, there would be a covenant that took place that would then compromise the worship of Yahweh. And you know, Satan has done this throughout church history. Think of the early church. He tried to squelch it with persecution. Eleven of the twelve apostles were martyred. In the first and second centuries, persecution was true of Christians. They, they were persecuted, they were killed, they were crucified. But in the mid-300s, Constantine became the emperor and he legalized Christianity. And no longer were Christians then persecuted. So the, the opposition no longer came from the outside, but then the enemy changes his tactics. And then false teaching arose from the inside. And we need to be mindful of this. Even as a body here at Good News, we may face opposition from the outside, from the world around us, who wants to squelch the gospel, who wants to push us away from Christ. But we need to be mindful of the attacks from within, our own body here. Satan is relentless and wants to see God's people torn from the worship of him. He succeeded in Ezra 9. Will he succeed among us? Will we compromise as the people of Israel compromised? It says that they have taken their sons and their daughters to be wives and for their sons to have wives and their wives to have husbands. And at the end of verse 2, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. You know, I had a friend once uh, tell me in, in Bible school, he, he was really distraught, honestly, because he thought this passage taught that there shouldn't be intermarrying of, of races. And he was really distraught by that, and that's what he was taught. And here, a passage says that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the lands. And I told him, I said, this is not what the passage is talking about. This is not a, a matter of genetics. They're called a holy race. See, Israel was set apart by God to worship Him from all the nations. They were set apart to be the true worshipers of the true God. And therefore, they were holy. And God called the whole community to this relationship. And this relationship between Israel and God was so intertwined that it was part of the fabric of who they were as Israelites. So much so that they could be said to be a holy nation. And that's the concern here, is the matter of the worship that they were called to be, to, to, to take part in. And that was being compromised by their intermarriage. And in this, and in verse 2, and in this faithlessness, the hand of the officials and the chief men had been foremost. The leaders were most guilty. And here we have Ezra's response in verse 3. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. You ever done that? 
You ever been so disgusted by sin that it brought you to that type of grief? He tore his garments, plucked the hair out of his head and his beard, and he just sat there. And then it says, Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. People who trembled at this thought joined Ezra in this grief. And here we have two classes of people that are being made. Those who trembled at God and then those who didn't. And I think this is kind of getting what, at what the main issue of this compromise was. When the people failed to fear God and love Him, they were drawn to search for love and joy in this world. And they found it in sin, in intermarriage. You received a rock when you came in and it says fear. And when you see this rock, ask yourself, who do you fear? If you fear God, does that fear and love for Him draw you to obedience? Or truly do you say you fear God, but really fear man and live for man instead? There's a crossroads here. And those who trembled joined Ezra. They sat with him in this sorrowful place. And they would stay there for many hours. It says, until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garments and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord, my God. And then he prayed. When we look at this, there's so many parallels into our own lives. For them, they lost their fear of God. And they lost that love for God that draws them to obedience. And when we lose sight of the true beauty there is in, in a relationship with Jesus Christ, when we start wanting to search, search for pleasure outside of Him, we're going to find ourselves in the same boat. And this is a call to separate. It's a call for us to separate from the world around us. Now, I was listening to Moody Radio uh, a week and a half ago, and this lady called in, and they were talking about e-books, you know, those, those Kindles where you can read your book on a little uh, tablet, you can download other books, so you don't have to carry around like a huge bag. You just have your book and this little thing, and they're talking about the value of it. Would it hold on? Do people really prefer that? And a lady called in, and she said, "You know, I really don't even know what you guys are talking about, but I do want to say this. I just think this is all wrong. You know, I don't, I don't let my kids go on Facebook. I don't let my kids. I don't, we don't have a cell phone. I'm, you know, e-books are wrong. These things are just such huge avenues for temptation, and I, I, I don't want any of it in my, in our lives." And the, the, the radio host, I was kind of proud of him because he said, you are aware, though, that you're calling into a radio station, which is a technological advancement. And when radios first started, many conservative Christians were against it because they used airwaves. And the Bible tells us that Satan is the prince of power of the air. And, of course, that's, that's a wrong application. So when we're told to separate from the peoples of the land, it's not to make ourselves culturally irrelevant, I tweet, I blog, I'm on Facebook. And if you want to be, that's good. But if it becomes an idol, it's wrong. So we need to separate ourselves from the sin and not from these other things. And this, person, this lady had it wrong. 
And the radio host was good to point that out. When I think of separation, I think of a, a popcorn tin. I was working on my sermon and uh, I was eating popcorn. And I, was, <laughs> I kid you not. And I was looking for an illustration of this part. I was thinking, I was like, you know, thinking and voila, it was in my hands. You get these tins, right? You get three, you get three flavors. You have your white cheddar. You know, you've got your butter, artificially flavored, of course. And you've got your caramel. Nicely separated, right? So I look in this picture and I think, when we look at Ezra and we interpret it as this, separation from the world, I think we've got it wrong. Separation is not all of us caramels hanging out together and at the neglect of the white cheddars and butters. I chose us as a caramel because that's my favorite flavor. <laughs> this isn't what God wants us. This is becoming irrelevant. This is not reaching the world. This isn't contagious Christianity. This is isolation and using separation or holiness as an excuse for comfort. What God wants us to do is this and to intermingle. Because I go in here, the caramel is still caramel, isn't it? It doesn't change its flavor. It maintains its identity among, but it's still separated in the sense it's different. And when we look at Ezra, this is what he's calling God's people to. To separate from the world and its sin, but not to become irrelevant. In chapter 6, the people of the land came to celebrate the Passover because God's people were faithful. And they let them join. They said, join with us as we worship our true God. So we don't want to take a wrong application of what it means to be separated. We need to engage our world but maintain our identity as Christians. You know, Paul says, I become all things to all people, but he wouldn't have become white cheddar if he was caramel. Paul wouldn't become a liar to those who lie. He wouldn't have become a womanizer when he's hanging out with womanizers. Paul said, I want to do whatever it takes to see these people come to Christ, so I'll become all things to them. I want to come among them. I'll maintain my identity in Christ, but I want to see them move to receive Him and trust in Him as their Savior. And that's the question we need to be asking. But to be honest, that's the question I think most are not asking. Rather than asking, how can I be a Christian in the secular world and try to win people for Christ? I think the question that's so often unfortunately asked is, how can I be a Christian and live with the world and still do all those things? And not give a rip about the souls that are going to hell each day. When we have that mindset, Compromise is near. Compromise is right there. When we start thinking, I want to be a Christian and I want to play with the things of this world. We wanted to be in Israel and come to the temple but intermarry with the idolaters. When we have that type of mindset of compromise, our women begin to give themselves over to some Casanova, some smooth talker, 
who promises the world delivers sorrow. Our men give themselves over to the dripping lips of sensuality, which is not sweet like honey, but bitter like wormwood. Our singles settle instead of raising the bar. If you're single in Christ today, don't settle. Don't settle. Don't compromise. Don't settle for garbage. Don't give your sex away. Don't give it away. Don't give your heart away. Don't give your affections away. Don't settle for the garbage and the compromise of this world because it never returns fruitful. And it takes you down a path of destruction because at that point, you don't fear God no matter what you say. So I plead with you, don't settle for trash. If you're single in Christ today, if it's God's will that you would be married, He will raise that woman of God or that man of God for you. And you don't have to settle for less. And the wait from now till then will be sweeter at that point than settling in the meantime and letting yourself go down that path of sorrow. We get sucked in like dirt off a rug to the vacuum of deception and immorality. And that's what happened here in Ezra 9. God's people settled. They settled. As a body of believers, we need accountability. I was thinking about this in Ezra. What was taking place in the community that this type of compromise was able to thrive? Did no one speak up? Did nobody say this is wrong? Did no one have the boldness to say don't marry the idolaters? It's silent. It's silent. And the only conclusion I can have is no one said anything. No one said anything. And we need accountability in our lives. When you see yourself going down that path of compromise, you need to put the brakes on it. And if you see someone else doing it, you need to lovingly come alongside of them. Compromise comes when we no longer feel the need to confess our sin because we're already forgiven in Christ. Compromise comes when we, uh, when we are not worried about how God views our sin, but to say, oh, God is loving. He's going to forgive me anyway. Compromise comes when we start thinking about how far we can go rather than how close to God we can be. And we need the courage to stand up and say something. Confronting sin is not easy. But look at the world of sorrow it brought. In chapter 10 next week, it's a mess. It's a mess. The repercussions are enormous. Now we need to be mindful not to be one extreme and be just someone come some be someone who comes with a bat and just beat someone up for their sin. But we can't be Mr. Nice Guy or Nice Gal who's just offering mercy without repentance. And it takes great wisdom to weigh these two. It depends on a person's response. Are they truly repentant or only are they sad they got caught? Or are they stubborn saying that's not the case? It just takes so much wisdom. But we need to speak up rather than stay silent and let something linger for how many years? 
And that's what happened here. I think for us to have that, that zeal, that, 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 that fervor for holiness, we need to have the convictions of a man like Ezra. You see, Ezra's response, what's his response? It says in chapter 5, he fall, in verse 5, he falls to his knees. He has his hands extended to the heavens. And then he prays. This is his posture. This is a posture of a broken man with a torn shirt, plucked out hair, who's truly sorrowful over the sin of his people. Chapter 10, verse 1 tells us that he did this with weeping. The guy's praying, weeping, because he saw the gravity, the, the, the uh, gravity of this sin. So we need to learn from his posture, his heart, and from his tone. Verse 15, the last verse of this prayer. I want to start there and then go back to verse 6. Look what it says. O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. He makes two statements. God, you are just. Us, we are guilty. What does it mean that God is just? The word righteous is almost synonymous to it. See, God is just in that He has to deal with sin. His holiness does not let sin coexist with Him. There needs to be judgment. And that's a loving thing from God. But it's reality. And Ezra says, God, you are just. This is what your character is like. And unfortunately, we're on the other end. We're guilty. So as guilty individuals, and you as a righteous God, the natural conclusion is, God, you deserve, you ought to judge us. We deserve your judgments for our compromise. That's the heart of this prayer. So now let's go back to verse 6 and see what he says. Oh my God, I am ashamed and blush to lift my face to you, my God. For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. Look at that. I am ashamed and I blush. It's like, God, I can't even look you in the eye and, and say this prayer. But why does it say our iniquity? Ezra, you're not the one who intermarried. You're not the one who compromised. You just showed up. This isn't your fault. But Ezra has a corporate identity here. If we are the body of Christ, in essence, if we are the true worshipers of the true God of the Bible, if we're going to self-identify in that part of our identity, we need to self-identify with the rebellion among us. So when someone tells you it's not your business to confront sin, it is your business. If you call yourself a child of God, it is your business. And Ezra says, God, I'm ashamed. I blush, God. I want to look you in the eye, God. Our iniquities have risen higher than our heads. Our guilt has gotten so high, it reaches you in the heavens, God. Verse 7, from the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt for our iniquities and for our iniquities, we, our kings, and our priests have been given into the hand of the kings of the, of the lands. 
to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame as it is today. Ezra knows that the consequence of their sin has been being a conquered nation. God sent them into exile. That was a consequence. And Ezra acknowledges we are guilty, we have sin, and there are consequences for that. And see the, 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 the progression here. It begins with the iniquity, the sin, which then leads to guilt. We're guilty for that sin. And then that guilt leads to shame. Which the, 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 the guilt, the sin is shameful. And that's what Ezra brings to light. And the result was they were handed into slavery. But verse 8, But now, for a brief moment, favor, grace has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within this holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God and repair its ruins and to give us protection in Judea and Jerusalem. As we're saying, God, in spite of all we've done in the past, you still have showed us favor. You've given us some reviving. You've given us love. So he's just recalling God's goodness. But then here he is. They spurned it. After all this, I'm still amazed that I'm more cursed than praised. Verse 10, And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? God, what, what shall we do? You've given us what we don't deserve and now we're still taking even that for granted. What shall we do? For we have forsaken your commandments which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, the land that you are entering to take possession of it is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the land and with their abominations that have filled it from, the end to, from end to end with their uncleanness. I mean, look at the language. It's impure, impurity, abominations, and uncleanness. Ezra knows, God, you made it crystal clear that we weren't supposed to do what we're doing. Marrying these people who don't love you. They don't care about you, God. They don't care about you. Therefore, in verse 12, do not give, it says, this is what God commanded, therefore do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our guilt, our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and given us such a remnant as this. Ezra is acknowledging, God, we were conquered, we were punished, we were led into exile, and God, I still acknowledge that was not what we deserved. We deserved even more than that. And yet you, you showed us grace, and now we're, we're doing it all over again. And in verse 14, shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? And then this plead, this plea, would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape? He's saying, please don't be so angry and consume us for good, God. We deserve it, yes, but please don't do it. We deserve to be wiped off the face of the earth. But please don't do it, God. 
that's the heart of a man who's broken. Their rebellion defied logic. And I spoke with somebody once, a guy I knew, who uh, was living in, in, in various forms of addiction. And his addiction was becoming so dangerous for his family that his wife had, had, was, was faced with an ultimatum to leave. And I spoke with him. I said, you know, your addiction is going to make you lose your family. And he says, I know. The very thought of losing my family draws me back to my addiction. I said, you know, that makes no sense. He says, I know it doesn't. The very thing that's keeping you from your family is the thing you run to at the thought of losing them. And that's how sin works. It doesn't make sense. It defies logic. When we consider God's great love for us, His people, that He would send His only Son, Jesus, to die to give us life, and then we would go out and find pleasure in the things of this world, it it doesn't make any sense. But that's the nature of compromise. And Ezra's just pointing it out here. He says, God, you're so good, we don't deserve it, and yet... We even took that for granted. And now, please, God, don't destroy us. We deserve it, but please don't. And then he states that statement that I mentioned already. Verse 15, O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. God, you are righteous. We are guilty. Your righteousness can't coexist with sin. We deserve that judgment. But God, please show mercy. That's his prayer. Ezra teaches us about repentance here in this prayer. You know, I talked about the compromises that we're faced with. That we're not supposed to separate from the world as in being irrelevant. We're not supposed to be a part of the world in the sense where we look like it where we give ourselves over for empty promises. And if you find yourself today, in all honesty, living in compromise, the only response that pleases God is repentance. It's the only response. You cannot leave here today if God has revealed something in your heart in this message. You cannot leave here today pleasing God without repenting. And it's not some shallow, God, I'm sorry, forgive me, let's move on together. What does Ezra do? He tears his clothes. He plucks the hair from his beard and from his head. He gets on his knees. He stretches his arms. He weeps. And between weeping, he's uttering this prayer. And look at the elements of this prayer. He begins with a recognition of their sin and their guilt. And that's the first step in repentance. Call sin what it is. It's sin. Immorality is immorality. Lying is lying. Adultery is adultery. Stealing is stealing. These are not illnesses. They're not symptoms. It's sin. It's sin. And Ezra starts out with calling it what it is. God, I can't even look you in the eye because of our sin. His next step then is he acknowledges the consequence of sin, doesn't he? 
God, you brought a nation to, to conquer us. And we need to come to grips with that. With that character of God. God, I deserve judgment for this sin. I deserve judgment. I deserve discipline, God. And you need to have that mindset in repentance. Because if you don't think you deserve that, then you're not going to truly be repentant of the sin. So he, he acknowledges it. He acknowledges the consequence. He acknowledges that God is merciful. The fact that he's still alive, that you're still alive. And then Ezra confesses it. We've intermarried with the people of the land when your word clearly said not to. And we need to come before God and say, God, this is what I've done. This is what I've done. This is all of it. And tell God. Because we have to recognize that rebellion is rebellion. And then Ezra pleads for mercy. He said, God, forgive us. Forgive us. And that's what we need to do if we're truly repentant. That's what you need to do if you're truly repentant. If God has worked in your heart and shown you something. Now that last statement that God is just and we are guilty. We have the pleasure as Christians in seeing how God dealt with that tension. So if God is just and righteous and we are sinful, He needs to deal with our sin how do we get by without being struck dead at the very moment? But the cross of Jesus. See, that's why Jesus came into the world. He became a man so that he could walk and live a perfect life. So that when God's, when, when the, the, when God's creation, when people crucified him on that cross, on that cross, he bore that punishment from a righteous God on a sinful people. He bore that. He took that. And he satisfied that. So that, when, so that God doesn't have to strike us. But in love, God has sent his son to be a propitiation, a satisfaction for sin. And in Jesus, we can have hope. That's the good news. So when we repent... That's what we're pointing to always, is the cross. Because there our sins are forgiven. There we have the sure hope of eternity because Christ has risen from the dead. If God has worked in your heart today, if He's revealed that your fear is truly not for Him, if He has revealed a life of compromise, even if it's in a small way, don't leave today without repenting, without coming before God and laying it before Him. I'm going to ask the prayer counselors to come up in just a moment, not yet though. I want to read a, a prayer. It's a Puritan prayer. It's called Continual Repentance. And this is what it says. And let, let us actually bow our heads and in prayer as, we, as I pray this. O God of grace, you have imputed our sin to our substitute, Jesus, and imputed his righteousness to us. You've clothed us with the bridegroom's robe. You've decked us with jewels of holiness. 
But in my Christian walk, I am still in rags. My best prayers are stained with sin. My tears have impurity. My confessions of wrong are so many. I need to repent of my repentance. I need my tears to be washed. I have no robe to cover my sins. No loom to weave my own righteousness. I am always standing clothed in filthy garments. Grant me to never lose sight of the exceeding sinfulness of sin, the exceeding righteousness of salvation, the exceeding glory of Christ, the exceeding beauty of holiness, and the exceeding wonder of grace. Father in heaven, for all in us, we're guilty, God. And Lord, I think of what that hymn says, we are prone to wander. But Lord, the message of Ezra 9 is a severe one, God. And God, I know your Holy Spirit is at work revealing compromise in our hearts, how we've bargained with our flesh, try to strike a deal with our sin. Father, would you confront us even now? Lord, would you lead your people? If it be a prayer of repentance in our seat, may we do that. If it be coming up with a prayer counselor, would we do that? Will we not be so aware of our surroundings and fearful to make a decision because of others who might be looking? But may we have the courage, God, to say enough is enough. God, you are just, we are guilty, and we need the cross. I thank you for Jesus who lets us even leave this place later with hope, the sure hope of forgiveness as we come to him. In Jesus' name, amen. Prayer counselors, will you come forward, please?